our Father, it is a, a great opportunity to meet with your people, to meet with one another that, that you have redeemed us by your blood. You have made us uh, children of your Father, and uh, these things are, will never change. And how we thank you for that certainty of our adoption uh, <clears throat> and our justification and our redemption and all of these things. Lord, help us keep those things in view no matter what circumstances we may face or you may call us to walk in. Uh, So, Lord, help us tonight as, as we look at the wonderful work of your son building his church in Acts. We pray, Lord, for the same kind of blessing that you would bless us even in, even in these late days, so to say, uh, with the power of your Holy Spirit and the Word of God, your Word, that you would make that real to us. We pray that you help us as a church to be about the things we, we ought to be about. Lord, we need your wisdom in, in those areas, Lord. We commit ourselves to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Okay, we're just studying through the New Testament, uh, maybe taking our time and doing it kind of overview and also some detail. And your comments and questions as we go in the class here are, are are very welcome. So I got a little diagram up here. Where we are tonight is right here. We were... At the day of Pentecost, that's what we're studying tonight in Acts chapter 2. And a lot happened on the day of Pentecost. We'll, we'll probably get through that uh, this evening. And then um, <clears throat> this whole section here, you notice this says 6M. That means six months. Okay? And here's another six months, but there's a question mark here. And another six months. So you can get a feel for how much time has gone by when all these things have taken place. And if you know that New Testament, and it's okay if you don't, you're here to learn, um, Saul's persecution is here on this chart. And that's really about the only date we know about all this period of time. Luke who wrote the book of Acts, doesn't give us a lot of chronological information as far as dates. But we know that that Paul's persecution begins in Acts chapter 8. And Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, is somewhere between year 2 and 3 after Pentecost. So backing up, all of this from Acts chapter, the almost the first seven chapters of Acts, which is we have here, that all happened within two to three years. So that's quite amazing in itself as we go through those seven chapters and, and see the church in Jerusalem and then Samaria. But all of these things up to here, up to Stephen's martyrdom, are happening in a period of maybe approximately just two years. Okay? So, help you get some sense of that. So, last week we stopped in the middle of Acts chapter 2 
down around verse uh, verse 22. So we'll, we'll just pick up there, uh, <clears throat> and we have here, uh, let's go there. What has happened right before this, what, what is, this is in the middle of Peter's message, okay? So what did Peter do? What did Peter, how did Peter start his message? And what did he explain at the beginning of the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit's outpoured. Peter stands up and he begins to preach. What, what is the first thing in his message? The first part of it. Yes, Doreen's got it. They are speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues. We talked about that. They're speaking in other languages, and they don't understand what's going on. And so Peter began his message right up here um, in verse 14. Okay, this is where Peter began his message, right? But Peter, taking up, Standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And we looked at that last week. Joel spoke of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that is now happening. So Peter first explains... This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that God would pour out his Holy Spirit on all of humanity. So that's where Peter started his message. And then in verse 22, um, he's quoting prior to that. But when we get to verse 22, Peter begins to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's that's where I want to pick it up here tonight. And... um, Let's just read this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him, referring to Jesus, being delivered up by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. So, Peter, he's, he's addressing thousands of the Jews that are gathered here. And he begins about Jesus, whom they know, and that yet they rejected him and put him to death. So, obviously, Peter is very bold (laughs) and, uh, you know, preaching like that to those who killed the Lord Jesus could get you killed, (laughs) but in this case, it didn't. And so, Peter's explaining to the Jewish people here that they've rejected their Messiah. They rejected their Messiah. And that's how Peter begins begins his message, that... um, According to Scripture, that the rejected by his own people, Jesus, is indeed the Christ. And that's where Peter is going in this message. Now, Peter has two 
apologetic methods here. One is he is a witness. They are witnesses of these things. And he's going to say that, that we are witnesses, meaning we are eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. We saw it. We saw him. Okay? So that's one aspect of his apologetic. The other aspect of his apologetic here is Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And those are his two apologetics here. We're we're the first-hand witnesses, and what we've witnessed is according to the Old Testament. And so we're going to hit these Old Testament references a little bit as we go. And see, the first one starts right here at verse 25. See? For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Let me scroll up a little. (coughs) That I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad, Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So, where's that coming from? Anybody know? You probably probably don't, off the top of your head, but... This is coming from Psalm This is coming from Psalm 16. That's what he's doing. Peter is now using Psalm 16 to explain Jesus's resurrection. And a key thing he says here of course is you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. What that means is your body decays. (laughs) Jesus will not be left in the tomb and his body decay. Now look at how Peter follows that argument. Men and brethren... Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. So you see, Psalm 16 is not just about David. That is Peter's point. Let's, let's look at Psalm 16. Let, let's, take, let's take the time to do that. I've just, I've just gone over to Psalm 16, and here it is right here. This is a psalm of David. David prayed this psalm. Okay, let's see the heading. It's a psalm of David. Okay, a miktam of David. Okay, so this is a psalm of David. And down here in verse 8, David is saying, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. This is David praying this. Now, this was true of David. David trusted in the Lord, and God was with him. But there's a greater David, 
David is a type of Christ. In other words, David is an Old Testament illustration of the greater David, Jesus, to come. Okay? And so uh, David says, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue, my tongue in my glory rejoices, my flesh, al- my flesh also will rest in hope. Now he's talking about his body. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, Peter is saying, guys, David's tomb is here in Jerusalem. (laughs) And we don't have to go open it to know that his body decayed. So, what's going on here? Peter says, David here is not simply talking about himself. David's talking about the Lord Jesus that God would not allow his body to see corruption, uh, which means the Lord was going to resurrect him. So are, are you guys following? You, you see how Peter's doing this. Okay. Let's go back to 22. Uh, right here. And there's his point. Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, David, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his or David's throne. And God had made a promise to David that of your descendants, you will not lack a man to sit on your throne. God established David's throne forever. And Peter is telling us the way that's established is through Jesus Christ, the descendant of David. And so uh, that's how Peter is reasoned. Christ is the Messiah. He's David's son. Okay. So he, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the what? Resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so he's preaching to thousands of Jews now. And uh, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> he's talking about Jesus. Okay. Let's go on. Let's follow his sermon a little further. Um, Here in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Okay? So like I said, he has a twofold apologetic. We are all witnesses of this. We're eyewitnesses of this. And the Old Testament scripture is our other witness. And so we are all witnesses here in in verse uh, 32 here. Now, this Jesus, hang on to that for a moment, okay? 
Now he, he hears he, up here he's talking about the Christ, but now he's talking about this Jesus. And we'll see who this Jesus is in a moment. God raised him up, and they're all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. So, poured out, this is the Holy Spirit, right? And they had this question, what does this mean? What are, what are, what are they speaking in all these languages? Who did this? Peter says, Jesus, after he exalted to the Father, he poured out the Holy Spirit. Okay? So this is Jesus alive building his church. Christ has the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit. And uh, isn't that what he had said? Absolutely. Absolutely, that's what he had said. He had said that in... Uh, John multiple places, didn't he? Let let me let me show you that Jesus promised to pour out uh, pour out the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. I'm in John 16 now. Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night of the Passover. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I depart, what? I will send him to you. (laughs) This is only 50 days between Jesus' talking this and being on the day of Pentecost. It's only 50 days. And so when Peter is saying, this Jesus poured this out, Peter is thinking of that Passover evening when Jesus said multiple times, I will send the helper. I will send him to you. So Peter understands that. He's made that connection. Jesus is the one who poured out this manifestation of the power and the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So uh, that's what Peter is informing them. Now, another Old Testament connection. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, there, Jesus is now at the right hand of God. He's telling them, this Jesus whom you crucified, he's at the right hand of God. Being exalted to the right hand of God, he poured out this Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till your enemies till I make your enemies your footstool. Do any of you know where that's coming from? That is the most, it's coming from the most frequently quoted piece in the entire Old Testament. The New Testament quotes this verse from the Old Testament more than any other verse. And you, you guys should know. You should know. If you know, you can know it now. It's Psalm one ten, okay? Psalm one ten, about Jesus Himself being exalted to the right hand of God. It's a messianic psalm, and there, Psalm one ten. It's another psalm of David. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter is saying, here we go. This, This Psalm 110 is about Jesus of Nazareth. And God has exalted him and he's sitting now at the right hand of God. Okay. And obviously, this is a psalm about the Messiah, the one who is to come. This is a messianic psalm. The Jews would have understood it that way. Okay? And you can read the psalm. It's, it's also quoted, look at this. Where is that quoted in the New Testament? Hebrews, Hebrews that's right. The book of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110 about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So this Jesus is not only the king, this Jesus is also the great high priest. He's king and priest. Okay, And we're going to find out in Acts chapter 3 that he's also the prophet. (laughs) He's the king. He's the promised coming king. He's the promised priest. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and we're going to find out that he is the prophet promised in Deuteronomy. Jesus is all three of those offices, all three of those Old Testament offices under the Mosaic Covenant. All three of those converge on this person, Jesus. He is now the king, the priest, and the prophet. They're all fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why, of course, those three offices end when we get to the New Testament. Okay, So we've gone off the track a little bit about Psalm 110, but this psalm uh, is is, um, central in the early witness of the apostles about Jesus. This psalm is central in in their witnessing as to who Jesus really is. So, uh, okay. So Peter is quoting from Psalm 110. Let's get back there. So, he comes to this startling conclusion. Therefore, let all those of the house of Israel know assuredly He has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay. Now, I I, I put some emphasis on this Jesus. And what he means by this Jesus, let's back up where he started this. And this is is significant. Bear, Bear with me to get here. Hear my words. Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. (laughs) This Jesus means Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus who came out of Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, who was rejected and crucified. This Jesus. You see, The unbelieving Jews 
would, would, would the unbelieving Jews ever refer to Jesus as uh, Jesus Christ? Would they, ever, would they ever do that? No. Why not? What's that? Why, why would the unbelieving Jews never refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ? Right. They did not believe this man, Jesus, was the Messiah. That's what Christ means. So they never refer to, re- refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ because they think Jesus is an imposter. They refer to him either as Jesus, the son of Mary, or Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> right. They would refer to him Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus from Galilee, but they never refer to him as Jesus Christ. That's a, min- that's a miniature confession of faith. When they said Jesus Christ, that was their miniature confession of faith. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. So when Peter says, let everyone know, let everyone in the house of Israel know that this Jesus, <laughs> this Jesus from Nazareth, God has made what? Lord and what? Christ, the Messiah. That's Peter's first conclusion. See that? Uh, let me put 36 back up here. Let, 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 it, let them know assuredly, with certainty, God has made this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God has what made him both Lord and Christ. Okay. <laughs> That's right. So you can and should call him Jesus Christ because God has made him both Lord and Christ. So, uh, <clears throat> so that was, uh, we got there with Psalm, uh, Psalm 110. You know, I skipped over the Davidic covenant there, it's on your notes. See in that right-hand column? It says Acts 2.30, 2 Samuel. I, I want to say something about that also. Uh, 2 Samuel. <clears throat> Therefore, being a prophet, referring to David, and, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ. What is that referring to in the Old Testament? Begin with a C. O. V. Covenant. Okay. Which one? The Davidic Covenant. Absolutely. Very important. Just as important as the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant is very important because it's in the Davidic covenant that the, the, that the Messiah is promised. The Son of God, the, who, the Messiah who's going to sit on the throne forever, that promise is the Davidic covenant. And, and that promised uh, king of the Davidic covenant to sit on his throne is going to be he who saves 
Israel and the Gentiles are going to be saved by the descendant of David. Okay, so it's the Davidic covenant that actually promises the Savior as one of David's descendants. And that's what Peter, you can't see me pointing to the computer screen if I was... That's what Peter is referring to. This Davidic covenant is now fulfilled in Jesus. See that? It's in 2 Samuel, by the way. It's where it is. No, okay, so that's his third reference to the Old Testament in his message to the Jews. The Jews would understand that immediately. Their hope was in the son of David. Remember the, the, the blind man cried out, have mercy on me, what? Son of David. And, and the Jews would say, could this possibly be David's son? And they're all thinking that because of this Davidic covenant that God had sworn to David to bring this reigning king to sit on his throne, what, forever and ever. Uh, so that's the third Old Testament apologetic, to use that term, that Peter is using here, saying Jesus is a fulfillment of all these things. So, <clears throat> okay. And they ought to know that with certainty. Um <clears throat> All right. Now we're down to verse 36. And so what happens now is, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They... They got it, and they, and they realized we crucified the Messiah. We rejected the Son of God. And they don't know what to do, okay? And so at that point, they asked Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? And uh, I want to follow my notes here a little more closely, or at the top of the next page now, 276. Now, let's see what Peter tells them to do. Then Peter said to them, what? Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's think about this a little bit. What Peter is doing here, telling them to repent for the remission of sins, and also telling them to repent and let every one of you be baptized in Jesus' name, Peter is following the instructions of the Great Commission passages. He's doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And remember, uh, what did Jesus tell them to do in the Luke Great Commission passage. Go into all the nations and what? Preach what? What's that? Well, the, that's, that's maybe in Mark. In the Luke passage, go into all the nations and preach something for something. 
What's that? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Great Commission in Luke, go in all the nations, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, well, what is Peter saying? They say, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do you say? Repent! Okay, he's following instructions. What about Matthew's Great Commission? Go in all the world and do what? Go in all the world and make what? And baptize them. Go in all the world, make disciples, and baptize them. He is following those instructions. Repent, what? And be baptized in the name of Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. Now, that's important because of some other controversial things that come up about verse 38. Okay? He's simply doing what those great commission instructions told him to do. Okay? Call the people to repentance for remission of sins and make disciples and baptize those in Jesus' name. That's what he's doing. Okay? So... I might as well say it here while you're thinking all about it. The the reason I'm saying this is some people have taken this verse and they say, well, if you're not baptized, you're not forgiven. Okay? They've done that. Because when you just read the verse by itself, you might think, you might think that, but you see, Peter is not answering that question of what are the essentials in order to be forgiven. That's not not the question he's answering. You see what I'm saying? That controversial question comes up other places in the New Testament. Are we saved by faith alone? Or, or are, we, are we saved by faith plus a sacrament? Or faith plus an ordinance? You see, but Peter's not engaged in that question in this text. All he's doing is what the commission passages told him to do. Call, the, call people to repentance. Those that repent, baptize them in Jesus' name. That text, Acts 2.38 is not there to answer that question. That's not even on his mind. Like, what is the minimum must be done? You see, that's why I'm showing you he's just doing what he was commanded to do. And obviously, it's not essential because for forgiveness, because when we get to chapter 3, and down here around, uh, where is it? Yeah, down here in verse, um, uh, where is it? Right here. In, in the message in chapter 3, look what we have. Uh, but those things, this is the ending of his message, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer have been he has thus fulfilled. What? Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. There's no baptism in that text, is there? No. Okay? 
No baptism in that text. So what Peter is doing in 2.38 is simply what Jesus told him to do. And, and, and that's not a text to answer the question, you know, must I be baptized in order to have my sins forgiven? So are you, are you guys with me? Okay. Oh. You should use the microphone because we've got a we got an on, online online and we we love our online people. I know. <laughs> okay. um, not to stretch out uh, 238 too far. But <laughs> but but you'll do it. Go ahead. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm uh, it's a it's a proof text for the baptismal regenerationist. Oh yes, that's their favorite proof text. Okay, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. Yeah, right. this is yeah this is definitely the proof text for yeah for baptismal regeneration or the idea that that you 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 your sins can't be forgiven until you're baptized. And what I'm doing for you, trying to do, is I'm trying to put Peter's statement in verse 38 into his historical context of what he's doing. And he's doing what Jesus commanded him to do. Nobody said that, that this question, must I be baptized in order to have my sins forgiven, that, that's not even coming up in this passage, that issue. You need to go to Galatians and Colossians and Romans 4 regarding that question, is anything else needed? And, and what did, what did uh, Paul do, now that we're on that subject, what did Paul do in Romans 4 about justification? You see, you see if, you, if you say you need to be baptized in order to be forgiven, that's equivalent with saying you need to be baptized in order to be justified. Okay. So, Paul is dealing with being justified, okay? So justification actually is more fundamental than forgiveness. Once you're justified, then you are forgiven. So what does Paul do in Romans 4 about Abraham's justification? Do you have the microphone? Use that microphone. you fix it? Yeah, Abraham believed, and it was accounted to, unto him as. Well, let's play it out. And how was and how was it accounted? Be, be, before he was circumcised or after? Before. Before he was circumcised, exactly. Abraham believed and was justified, and then Paul asked, "While circumcised, or while uncircumcised?" And what does Paul say? While uncircumcised. So Abraham was justified before he had the outward sign of the covenant. And all that Abraham did was what? Believe. That's all he did. He believed in God's promise to him. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was justified. Then he received the sign of circumcision after. So Romans 4, as well as other places, is of faith alone. Okay? Now you see, in Romans 4, that the question is up for discussion, isn't it? Paul's writing to the Jews, can we be circumcised? Can we be saved without circumcision? See, the question is up 
in Romans 4, and then you see the clear answer. It's faith alone, justified before circumcised. Now, Romans 4, that is a context, you see, to, to answer this question. So, no, hey, Dave, I thought where you were going to go was, was about our, our Paedo-Baptist brothers and sisters oh, yeah. in, in, in the rest of verse 38. But that's just a conversation between you and I, and I want to move yeah, on. No, 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 I, yeah. That <laughs> the promise is to you and to your children. Yes. In, 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 verse, yeah. in verse 38. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you know my personal sensitivity. Your, your personal background. It goes, goes back to my liberal Protestant upbringing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, Peter's doing what the, what the Lord command, commanded him to do. Um, now, uh, let's... Oh, yeah, let's get back with chapter 3. Let's get back to chapter 2. Um, all right. He talks about the promise and so forth. I want to I hit verse 40 here a little bit. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, the first thing we learn from this is Luke has just given us a cliff notes. He's given us a summary of Peter's sermon, what we've been going through there, the main points of how Peter reasoned them under the blessing of the Spirit to the conviction that Jesus is the Christ. But, but Peter's sermon was much larger than what we have recorded here. And Luke summarizes the rest of it with that statement. With many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I want to talk about this here for a moment. Um, This expression, perverse generation, is language borrowed from the Old Testament. And it represents the, the Old Testament describing Israel's persistent unbelief. Okay? That if you read your Old Testament, you'll see the history there. Over and over again, they do not believe in Yahweh. They do not trust him. And that characterized them generation after generation, persistent unbelief in God and his promises. And that expression of of perverse generation, uh, we can look at Numbers Numbers 32, 13. So the Lord's anger, this is when they refused to enter the promised land. Remember that? If, if you know your Old Testament, you know under Caleb and Joshua, they, they went to spy out the land. And God had promised to give them the land. God said, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the land. I promise you the land. And so when they got up to the border... Moses sent 12 spies out in to spy out the land. 
And the 12 spies come back and they say, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord has said. And all of these and all the, all the things we saw, but, but, but we saw the Anakim there. And their cities are fortified. And the Anakim are the giants. And ten of the twelve said, we can't conquer the land. God had shown them all those miracles coming out of Exodus and all of that and promised over and over again. And only Caleb and Joshua said, no, the Lord has promised the land to us. Let us go up and take it immediately. We can do this. I'm paraphrasing. And they wanted to stone Caleb and Joshua. And so the ten of them were unbelieving, weren't they? The ten of them, unbelief, unbelief. And they poisoned the minds of all the rest. See, that's the persistent unbelief. And that's where this phrase, evil or perverse generation, comes from. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until what? All that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. That was an evil generation. Evil generation centers on refusal to trust and believe in the promises that God has made. Deuteronomy, he recounts it. Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall seek that good shall see that good land. That's the expression that Peter's using, this perverse or evil generation. Now it really comes out in Jesus' teaching what this phrase means, and, and we'll see that mostly in Luke eleven. Sorry, I'm going the wrong way here. Luke eleven twenty-nine. Okay. And while the crowds, this is Jesus' uh, incident with the Lord Jesus. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he, Jesus, began to say, see, this is an evil generation. Okay, that's where Peter's language is coming from. Peter was there. Peter heard Jesus do this. This is an evil generation. He's talking about that current generation of the Jewish people. It's an e- Why is it an evil generation? It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Well, at this point in the gospel history, had any signs been given? No? But at this point in the Gospel of Luke, had any signs been given? Right. At this point in Luke 11, they have seen hundreds of signs already. They have seen miracle after miracle. And I'm not sure where the raising of the widow from Nain is in in Luke's record here. They've probably even seen... Jesus Jesus rose, raised three people from the dead. They've seen many signs, but what are they doing? What are they not doing? They're not believing that Jesus is the Messiah. 
They've seen many signs by this time, and that's why he's labeling them an evil generation. In spite of seeing all these signs, they are still rejecting him. Okay? And so he says, and no sign will be given. Well, plenty of signs were even given after this point, all right? And plenty of signs were given before this point. But Jesus talks about the ultimate sign. No sign shall be given except Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. What's the sign of Jonah? Three days and three nights in the belly of the great sea monster, and then he came out, and Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection. Okay, so what he is saying in a veiled way, it hasn't happened yet, but in a veiled way he's saying, the ultimate sign is going to be, I'm going to rise from the dead. Okay, and what is, pre- what is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost? The ultimate sign. We're witnesses to the ultimate sign. So that's the terminology of evil generation. You have everything you need a hundred times over that it's reasonable for you to repent and believe in this man. And you still refuse to do so. That's the perverse generation. Okay? And that's what Peter is talking about down here in, in verse 40. I'm in Luke. <laughs> Sorry. That's what he's talking about down here. He exhorted them, be saved from this perverse generation, the hardness of their unbelief. And that is the fundamental sin, not only of the Jewish people, but of anybody who has heard the gospel over and over again. <laughs> okay, so that warning, we, we have become a perverse generation more and more, haven't we, in our nation? Absolutely. We've had the gospel over and over and over again. We've been blessed with the gospel. We've been blessed with the word of God. You know, and, and we know more about the history. We know more about archaeology, right? We, we know more about the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament, right? We have all of these things. So we have become, many ways, a perverse generation. You reject him. Uh, and so don't, don't reject him. Believe in him. So the perversity here is persistent unbelief in Jesus as the Son of God. That's the perversity. Now, notice the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the helper. Notice what the help... Obviously, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost were going to move out of the perverse generation, weren't they? They suddenly began to believe we crucified the Messiah, that Jesus really is the Christ. Now look at um, John, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that's what's happening. I'll tie this together. Just just bear bear with me. Uh, John comes. uh, I don't have it. I don't have it. Oh, there it is. Okay. 
the day of Pentecost, excuse me, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, it's to your advantage that I go away so that the helper, the helper will come, but if I go away, what I will send the helper to you. I will send him to you. And what is he going to do? What's the first thing he's going to do? And when he comes, he will what? Convict the world of sin. What sin? Down here. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Get it? That is the sin. That's the big sin. That's what he's going to do. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, and it defines it. What is a sin? Because they do not believe in me. They reject the Son of God. Okay? And in the Gospel of John, it's almost like there is no other sin. <laughs> of course, there are other sins. I'm not saying that. But in the Gospel of John, it's like this, this really is the only sin. The, re- the refusal to believe in the crucified, risen, exalted Son of God, whom God sent into the world. Right? And when we evangelize people, that's where we want to go. Okay? We, we, we want to we go there. And say, yeah, sure, are there other sins? Yeah, do I need to stop living with my girlfriend that I'm shacked up with? Yeah, you know, you should stop doing that, okay? And all these other things. But there's something more important than any of that. It's your response to the fact that God sent his son into this world to have a conversation with us, okay? And to reveal God to us. That is the issue. And to reject him is the sin of sins. Okay? And that's what Peter is telling them. Be saved from this perverse generation. This hardened in unbelief generation. That's exactly what Peter is telling them. Don't be like the guys in numbers. Okay? You'll never enter the real promised land if you're like those guys. See that? Yeah. You know, Dan, I know this is just a, a summary. These are the highlights of the uh, entire message that Peter brought yes. at, at Pentecost. But I'm surprised he didn't bring uh, Psalm 95 to bear. You know, not harden your hearts. You're right. Psalm 95 would be very appropriate. Actually, now the writer to Hebrews. He capitalizes exactly, yeah, on multiple times, multiple right. times. Right, yeah. and that issue in Hebrews is about faith. Continue in your faith in Jesus. Right, you're right, Dave. Yeah, Psalm 95 would be be applicable. So, okay, oh, in all that excitement, I lost my notes. <laughs> but I have to admit, I used to preach this text like a moralist. Uh, I'll confess my own teaching. The, the be saved from this perverse generation. I, I, I used to preach that like a moralist, like, you know. And it's so much more powerful if you preach it like what it really means about people's unbelief is a real issue about this man, Jesus. 
And that, of course, then can lead you, sure, Jesus is the one who can save you from sin. The Son of God is the Savior. Now, let you know, trust in him, and here's what he will do for you. Okay, sure, that's where we want to go. But we want, we want, we, people need to get into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, <laughs> is, is what they need to do. So. Okay, well, I think we better stop there. It's a few minutes after eight. Uh, yeah, I thought it'd be good to spend some time on, on Peter's uh, first sermon here and pull in these Old Testament connections like, like he does. Any, any other, you got some questions or comments? We're very, very welcome. Oh, we don't have Brian here. He, oh, he's on security. Brian usually gets us started, so. <laughs> Dave, Aiden. All right. Okay, Ron. Let, hand, hand Ron the microphone. We got we got people that list, pick this up kind of online and listen to it later. Ready? Okay. Y- yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me um, that there's a lot of it can be deceiving as to a person can do a lot of wonderful things, even caring good things. Yeah. But if they lack the belief, that goodness doesn't come from much. That's right. No, it doesn't. It needs to, you need to have the relationship with God, like you says, and do the, those things. Then it, it has, yeah. it, at least it impresses him. Yeah. But the other thing, you don't teach him if you're not paying any attention to him. That's right. That's and that that you, it does. You're right, Ron. You know, and, um, you know, we, we have the great commandments flipped. The greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Right? The second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And so you have people that are all about their neighbor. You know, they thank their neighbor, they honor their neighbor, they do good to their neighbor, they do all that. But they never have anything to do with God. They completely ignore him. And so, no. It can appear on paper just the same, but it's not. No. You're not connecting it to the Lord, you're not with the truth. Right, because he is the one that we ought to worship. He is the one we ought to honor. We're created to know him and to worship him. And, and that's number one. But what we do in our sinfulness is we ignore him and we make man more important than God. And that you're right, that is not, not going to lead to salvation. And that's also probably why Scripture at times says there's none who does good, not one. It, you're right. So, so externally and humanly speaking, they're, they're doing good in that sense. But in the ultimate sense, that what makes something good is when it's done in, in submission and faith and trust to God. It's done out of respect to God. So... The person that ignores God is doing all these things, but not out of respect for God. So that's not really good in the truest sense. You see, see what I'm saying? Oh, it, well, it appears to the unregenerate mind good, but the mind that's been trained by Scripture, we know that 
ultimately that that not is not ultimately good. It's not right. I'll throw up. You're reminding me of a text, Ron. Let's pull up um, Romans one. Pull up Romans one here, and Paul makes this amazing statement about the the sins of us Gentiles before we're converted, and it is. Yeah, it is right here. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him or honor him as God, nor were thankful. He begins the list of the sins of the Gentiles with, they did not honor God. They did not honor him as God. So obviously, to ignore him is not to honor him as God, right? And look at the second thing. Nor were they thankful. Now that's how God looks at humanity as to what's most important. And then all the other sins come down in the latter part of the chapter. But we are indicted because we don't honor God, honor him as God. What does it mean to honor him as God? Believe him, trust in him, respect him, obey him, worship him, right? It would mean all that, to honor him as God. This is not talking about, you know, honoring your dog or your neighbor, (laughs) This is talking about honoring God, what? As God. As he ought to be honored. So, no, we're lost and we need the Son of God to save us, don't we? Because none of us have done that, right? None of us have honored God as God. As he ought to be honored. No. There's only one man that's ever done that, and that's Jesus (laughs) Yeah. Anybody else? You you got us on a good course, Ron. <laughs> Any anybody anybody else? So where'd the microphone go? Okay. Looks like you're gonna have the honors. Lead us in prayer as we finish. All right, dear Heavenly Father Lord, I just thank you for this time together as a family, as a your sheep, your flock, as we hear your word and just the amazing thing about scripture and just revealing your truth to us. And sometimes we just really need to hear it. We really need to know how bad our sin is, how terrible our unbelief is and how we need Christ to save us. So I thank you so much for this time. I ask you bless every family, every person hearing that it just allowed to sink into their souls and just be with them as they go about their day. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.